Amen. Okay, so let's start with the principle. The unseen explains the seen. So the unseen explains the seen. Now, if you think about the way the Bible talks about the unseen, then you'll realize how backwards we oftentimes get it. In other words, in our passage from last Sunday from 2 Corinthians 4, the Apostle Paul says, fix your eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. Right? Isn't that the command of Scripture? What is unseen? That's what we need to, that's what we need to see. That's what we need to know. But yet, oftentimes what we do is we live our lives just according to that which we see with our own eyes. Now think about this. In 2 Kings 6, when Elisha's servant, you know the story where he's, you know, looking out there and Elisha gives him sight and he looks out and he sees the, the hills and the landscape and the trees. And when Elisha gives him sight, he sees that they're surrounded by chariots and by an army to protect them, right? Before that, all he could see was the, the enemy and he thought, oh no, we're going to die. And Elisha grants him sight, and now he can see that the army that's for them is much larger than the army that's against them. But here's what I want you to see about that. I want you to think for a moment about how did did the servant's sight, did it diminish what he saw prior to having supernatural sight? In other words, everything that he saw with his natural eyes, he saw with his supernatural eyes except for he saw a lot more. So what I'm telling you is, is that it's not that what you can see with your natural eyes is unimportant. It's just vastly incomplete. See, he could, he, the, the hills didn't change. The trees didn't change. The, the sun didn't change. The, the landscape didn't change. What changed, it was, it was in addition to. So it was like a supercharged version of what he had originally seen. So the point is, it's not that the things that we see aren't real. It's just that what's really important, we don't see. What changes our whole perspective are the invisible things. And so this is a perfect example of that. Now, let's look first of all at the deficient power of demons, the deficient power of demons. They have power. But it's a deficient power. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dysfunctional power. Verse 27. So Jesus steps out on the land and he meets him. He meets there a man from the city who had demons for a long time. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house but in the tombs or the graveyard. Now, the only thing worse than a crazy demon-possessed man is a naked crazy demon-possessed man. So, you can imagine the disciples are like, are you kidding me right now? I mean, what have you gotten us into? I mean, what in the world is going on? Now, you know, we'll find out in a few minutes that uh, this is somebody that everybody's afraid of. They're, he's terrifying. Now, Let's make some clarifications about about what we're talking about just to make sure we're on the same page. First of all, demons are fallen angels, and they're driven by their hatred of God. 
That's what drives them. So we know some things about demons because the Bible teaches us things about demons, but we also know things about angels because the Bible teaches us things about angels. Now, everything that's true about angels is not necessarily true about demons, but some of them are. In other words, you know, certain things we know are, are true, like that they don't reproduce, they don't die, they don't grow old. We know that. We know that, um, that they have power greater than me and you have. Now, you know, in 2 Kings 19, that's where we have the story of one angel under God's direction, not demon, angel, that single-handedly kills 185,000, an army of 185,000 men. Do I think demons can do that? No, I do not think so. They probably could if God enabled it or allowed it, but nonetheless, I don't, I wouldn't say that, you know, that was, that was an angel that God, that was on a mission from God. But demons use their power to promote disunity, false doctrine, and anything else to suppress the glory of God. See, what demons do is they, all of their work revolves around things that bring glory to God. That's their, because really that's the, their motivation is hatred for God. And the only realm in which they can uh, work against God is the, the realm of trying to thwart His glory, which is, has to do with us because that's why we exist, is for the glory of God. It's not like, you know, demons can't do anything to God. So just like I've been saying through 2 Corinthians that we're the ones that wage war. That's not flesh and blood, but it's powers and principalities. We're the ones in the midst of that war. We're the, the players in that. Now, because we are created in the image of God and demons are devoted to anything that's against the glory of God, demons desire to dehumanize people. So whenever there's uh, interaction between demons and people, the motivation is always an attack against the things that glorify God. And any ramifications to me and you are always something that dehumanizes us because demons obviously don't want us to be more human because we're made in the image of God. So that should make sense to you. So Mark 5 tells the, uh, Mark tells the same passage in chapter 5. And the way he says it is always day and night. He, this man was in the mountains, in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. So, you know, we've talked about this before, where every time in the Bible you see somebody who's demon-possessed, it's interesting that there's always some form of self-harm. Here we have a man cutting himself. We have uh, demon-possessed children that, that the are casting themselves into the fire, or having some kind of seizures, or there's always some kind of uh, self-harm because it's, again, dehumanizing. And it's, again, an attack against the fact that we're created in the image of God. So the question that I always ask is, why in the world doesn't a demon who possesses a person protect that person. See, it, it, it would make sense to me that if 
a demon possessed a person, the demon would protect that person and then use that person to attack everyone else. Wouldn't that make sense? Would make sense to me. But because demons can't change their nature, can't control what they're, uh, what they're bent towards doing, they, they're destructive and they can't not destroy whatever they're involved in because that's just what they do. And so therefore, there's always this issue of self-harm, which is counterproductive, but, you know, let's face it, being a demon is counterproductive because look at, you know, look at where you were and now where you are. So, so because Satan hates God, he hates what God loves, and God loves people. And so we're always in the crosshairs of this battle that's raging on between good and evil, this invisible battle. See, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, and the thief just steals, kills, and destroys. That's what, that's what the thief does. That's who the thief is. Now, let's move on and talk about the dominating power of Christ. The dominating power of Christ. Now, when you get to the power of Christ in this story, then you realize that the story basically says everything there is to say about that. In other words, in verse 28 and following, so when the... When he sees Jesus, he cries out, falls down before him, and with a loud voice says, what have, you to, what have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man, for it had often seized him, and it kept him under guard, bound in chains. And he was often kept under guard, bound in chains and shackles, and he broke the bonds that he... And, was driven by the demons into the wilderness. Then Jesus asked him and said, What is your name? He says, Legion, because many demons had entered him. And they begged him that he would not command them out into the abyss. So you have the, the demons begging Jesus for mercy. Now this reference to the abyss, that would be because all demons will ultimately be cast into the lake of fire. But prior to being cast into the lake of fire, they're going to stand judgment. So where will they be before they're judged? The abyss. That's basically what 2 Peter 2 talks about. That uh, for if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into the chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. So they'll be in this uh, basically you know, hell holding tank until they face judgment. So they're afraid to go there, obviously, and so they're begging Jesus for mercy. Verse 32, now the Bible tells us that there's a herd of swine that was feeding on the mountain. So then they begged Jesus that he would permit them to enter them, and he permitted them. Hmm. Now, I put Luke eleven twenty there, where, G, where uh, Jesus said, But if I cast demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. In other words, 
I don't have any words to, ex- to explain. I don't, I don't know of any adjectives to, to do justice to the difference between the power of God and the power of demons. Like I could say that it's like a, you know, it's an elephant and a flea, but it's not even an elephant and a flea. That, that's really not a good illustration. It's, it's far, the difference is far greater than that. The, there's no power struggle. There's no, uh, you know, there, there's no, there, there's nothing unknown on the side of God. There's no hesitation. There's no, you know, he's not stopping or thinking or wondering or anything like that whatsoever. Whenever, whenever Jesus encounters a demon, the demon freaks out, completely freaks out, and completely uh, buckles under and just begs for mercy immediately before Jesus most of the time does anything. So I don't have words, no blanks, no nothing. It's just the, the dominating power of Christ. Okay? So now we have these two pieces of the puzzle. We have the we have the power of demons because to us, compared to us they have power, and then we have the power of Christ. All right, now let's get into the meat of this and look at the obvious work of evil. The obvious work of evil. Because evil is obvious and it's not creative. It's not uh, you know, it's not modernized. It's not, it's not new, revised, revamped. No, it's the same old song and dance. It's the, same, it's the same play that's always been played, is being played today. And I don't think that's necessarily um, uh, because evil hasn't come up with new and creative ways. I think it's because the, the ways have always worked and they still work today. I mean, I think that evil is 100% uh, success-driven. And so, you know, all they care about is results. All they care about is things that work, and it works. Because, listen, here we've got an account 2,000 years ago, and I'm telling you right now that what I'm about to say has not changed one bit to today. There might be different tools and different mechanisms involved in the process, but it's the same exact thing with the same exact outcome. So let's, let's look at what the Bible tells us about this man who's demon-possessed. Let's don't get lost in all the, you know, the, the imagery of it. Let's just, let's just look at what the Bible tells us about it. See, the first things that the demons want to do, it, he's defiled. He's defiled. They want to defile him. They want to defile you. They want to defile me. That's what they want to do. Notice the Bible says, when he steps out on land, there he met a certain man from the city who had demons for a long time. So that tells us something. He didn't always have demons because nobody always have de- has demons. But they were for a long time. And he wore no clothes, nor did he live in a house, but in the tombs. Now, I wonder why. Why does it tell us that he lived in the tombs? Well, you think about the culture in which we're talking about. Now, we've got 
a boatload of, we got, of Jewish guys who have now crossed over into this Gentile area of, of cities for the very first time. This is Jesus' first Gentile visit. So he goes into this Gentile city. Now these Jews, Jews are big on what's clean and unclean. And at the top of the list of unclean is anything dead, right? And so here this man is, he's out in the tombs. Now, he's probably out in the tombs for, you know, a number of practical reasons, I guess, we could, we could come up with. But here's what we know. He's out there, and he's seen by the other people, the other people that live in Gadara, as see him as unclean, defiled, broken. Something's wrong with him. We don't want to be around him. We don't want him around us. We don't. So he's out there. He's unclean. Now, what, what happens to somebody who's labeled unclean? Unclean comes with a whole package of goods with it. Shame, guilt, regret. And what the enemy wants to do is the enemy wants to get you in a position where you either declare yourself unclean or where other voices around you that you that that have weight in your life declare you unclean so that either way it happens it's all about getting this shame and this guilt and this regret piled up in your life see you have to be very careful about shame guilt and regret now why i mean you got to be careful because this is a very uh, dicey situation because on one side you could we could we could have some kind of weird uh, you know worldly philosophical conversation about you know oh well it's nothing's your fault and it's everyone else's fault and you know because this happened to you when you were a kid, or it's your parents' fault, or whatever the case may be. And so you're broken, and you, you, know, you have all these problems, and you do all these things, and it's not your fault, it's someone else's fault, which is completely ridiculous because uh, it, may be, it, may, it may be a component of your life. But understand something. You're the one that's going to give account for your life. So you got to be careful about it's, it's perfectly normal and healthy to understand. I always say your, your, your past explains you, but you better not let it define you. You better not let it define you. So on that side, that's dangerous. But then on this side over here, what happens when we start? See, we, we just deny it altogether. It's not my fault. So I, I'm this way because of whatever. But then over here, we got people that are just, you know, snuggling up to all their shame and all their guilt and all their regret. They don't want to let go of it. And so you're allowing it to just uh, linger around in your head. You're allowing it to just, you know, you're carrying it around like, like you, everywhere you go, you got a suitcase or a backpack full of all your shame and your guilt and your regret. Now, here's the thing. Is it real? I mean, understand something. We all have it, 
right? Like we all have a past. So I have shame and guilt and regret from my past. No doubt about it. And is it real? Yes. Did I do things and, and was I a part of things that I wish I... 100%. That's real. But what's more real than that? Remember the opening conversation about unseen versus seen? So all of that's there, like the mountains and the trees and the landscape. But when I have supernatural sight to see that, what do I see? I see that the blood of Christ just eradicates that. So I'm not carrying that around. I'm not, I'm not blaming it on somebody else, but, I, but I'm not snuggling up to it and carrying it around. Because this, you are playing right into the enemy. When you do that, you are just swinging the door open for problems. Because once he gets a foothold and you start, you know, some of you are experts at beating yourself up. Yeah. And you just constantly just, you know, running through the list of your past. And here's the problem. The problem is is that your past is blurring out the view of your present. See, it's robbing you from the present. That's the problem. So, So what I would suggest... Because we all have a past, what I would suggest is that you, you explain it, you figure it out, you explain it, you address it, you address it. Once you, by address it, I mean according to the Bible. Once you've addressed it according to the Bible, then you allow God to define it. So whatever happened in your past is defined by God. And so, so by address it, I mean you figure out what's going on. You figure out where you are with Christ. Once you've come to the realization that you're born again and belong to the Lord and that He's taking care of all that, then the definition of your past is not that it didn't happen and not that it didn't, it's not real. But, it, but here's the truth. The truth is, but it's... It's removed as far as the east is from the west. So what are we carrying it around for? And I would say this. So you're saying I should never talk about it again. No, that's not what I'm saying. This is what I'm saying. The only time it should be coming out of your mouth is when you're using it to help someone else. Otherwise, what are you doing? Some of you just, all you want to talk about is all the things you did in the past. And don't you understand, you're literally shackling yourself to evil. I mean, you are opening the door for all kinds of problems in your life that you don't need. Because here's the problem, you're denying the reality of what's unseen. The only value, it's gone. You understand that? It's gone. The only value in talking about that 
is what the Bible says the value of it is, which is we use it to help other people that are going through the same thing or going through a similar thing. Or see, oftentimes, you know, I mean, I'll just give you a perfect example. See, a lot of times, like I'll have a conversation with somebody and they'll, they'll say, you know, Brother Tony, and, and this is a real life, real struggle, real situation. Maybe they, maybe they uh, are in a uh, divorce situation, and so they have joint custody. And they're trying to raise their kids for Christ, but yet they have joint custody with, you know, somebody who's not all there and not walking with the Lord. And so it's a huge problem, and it's a great burden, and it's a real burden, and it's a terrible, painful situation. So you're telling me about the situation, right? And I'm listening, and I'm, and I'm feeling the pain that you feel, and I'm imagining how bad it would feel to be in your situation. It's real. And then I listen, and when you're done talking, this is what I say. I say, now, I'm going to pray for this situation, but before I pray, I want to remind you of something. I just want you to know that all of these things that are going on with your child, that your child's being, you know, exposed to things that are just make your skin crawl and they're terrible and all this and all this is going on. Don't lose hope because your pastor grew up the same way. See? And suddenly, now, does it make everything go away? No. But, but it brings it back into reality for a second. Let's just hold on, okay? You came to get counsel from somebody who grew up in the middle of that. So let's not just say, oh, everything's hopeless, right? See, that's how you use your past. Because the enemy wants you to be defiled. Secondly, isolated. Because as soon as you get defiled, what's the next thing that happens? Isolated. So Mark chapter 4, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces, neither could anyone tame him. So why are they chaining him up? He's all the way out in the wilderness in in the tombs. Now, the Bible doesn't say that he's prowling around through the city, you know, haunting people or attacking people or, you know, that he's a raging cannibal. or We don't get any of this information, so you, we can't just go on speculating about all sorts of stuff. The information we get is, is that he's chained up, bound in shackles and chains. So why? Why would he be bound up in shackles and chains? And the only answer that you could come up with is because the people didn't want him around them. Right? They don't want him around them. Now, maybe he's dangerous. Maybe he's not. That's irrelevant. What's relevant is they don't want him around them. Because remember, all of this, we're talking about the, 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 the plan of evil here. It's to isolate. And the agenda of evil is always to destroy our community. 
If we have healthy community, the enemy is going to just attack your community and try to replace it with unhealthy community. Think about this. When we were out uh, in the community Sunday, for Saturate Sunday, just like all the other Saturate Sundays, I didn't experience anything different than what you experienced. We all experienced the same thing. We're all in the same community. So I know what you saw because you saw what I saw, which is the same thing I always see, which is we go into neighborhoods and we start going door to door to door to door. And for the, the vast majority of people are inside. The only people that are outside are people that are accomplishing a task. You might have talked to somebody outside who was mowing the grass or who was washing the car. It was, but here's what you didn't see. You didn't go into any neighborhood, anywhere, anytime. And all the people were out sitting on their front porch. Everybody was in their front yard visiting with each other. You didn't see that because it doesn't exist in our culture. Everybody's in their house. And if somebody's out of their house, they're in their yard doing their thing, and then they're going to go back into their house. Rarely are you going to find anybody who's visiting with their neighbors or outside doing something together or anything of that nature. Now, hmm, it wasn't always that way, was it? No. But it's that way now. And... I wonder, I wonder why we're growing more and more and more isolated and more and more and more internalized and more and more and more. I mean, think about it. It's bizarre. Like when I was a kid, which, yes, it was a bazillion years ago, you know, because your 14-year-old and your 10-year-old literally, they literally think 1980 was like, was there electricity in 1980? I mean, th their concept of time just absolutely makes me feel like I'm 748 years old. I mean, it's unbelievable. So, but when I was a kid, you know, like going around pedaling cars with your feet like the Flintstones, uh, everybody was outside. I spent, I'm a, I spent all my time out in the road with all my friends playing ball, doing stuff outside. Doing Nobody's outside. And you know what we would say? Some of you are already thinking this. You're like, well, they're not outside because it's hot. Do you think? It was hot in my house. I was outside. It didn't matter. But nobody does that anymore. And, and. Are, are we growing more and more healthy or more and more unhealthy? I mean, it's, and look, all, look at all of these devices. In other words, it's the same agenda, just new tools. So the enemy is crafty with the tools, but it's the same exact, it's the same scheme, same agenda. You know, we're just going to, instead of making friends with people, we'll just be friends on Facebook perfect. We'll just, we won't actually talk to anybody. We'll just sit in front of it. So everyone goes inside 
and sits down and opens up their laptop or sits in front of their computer screen, and then that's their interaction, which is not interaction. And so who wins? And so don't, you know, just understand that it's bizarre. It's bizarre, isn't it? Man, it's so crazy. See, if you lose your community, you'll lose your morality. That's what happens. Why do you think we're all, we don't have a moral compass? Well, we don't have any community. Where would we get a moral compass from? Well, in other words, when you, you know, when you, uh, there's so many illustrations of this, but, you know, I mean, I, I mean, you pay attention to, those of you that live in neighborhoods, you pay attention to what's going on in the houses around you, and you just scratch your head and go, what is wrong with you? Okay, where would the concept of doing something different come from? In other words, you could have said the same thing about me when I first got here, and I definitely said it about you when you first got here. Like, what, what is wrong with you? Right? Yeah. And then God gets a hold of us, and what happens? We get in community, and we start to change. But if you're not in community, you're not gonna, your morality is going to erode. You know why? Because guess how you're going to, uh, you know, guess how you're going to make all sorts, all your moral decisions? Privately. You know what happens when you make your moral decisions privately? It doesn't go so good. It goes really bad. I mean, we all know what happens when we're the, we're the sole, uh, you know, captain of our lives, where that's going to lead. I mean, so you see this issue of isolation? So as soon as we got him defiled and unclean, we got the guilt, we got the shame, we got the regret, we got all that, boom, isolation comes. Then once that happens... It's a guarantee it won't be long and there'll be suffering. There's suffering. Now, notice how miserable the man is. And always, Mark 5, 5 says, night and day, always. Not sometimes. You know, like, like he has bad days, you know, a couple days a week are bad. No, it's always night and day. He was in the mountains and in the tombs crying out and cutting himself with stones. Why is he crying out? Why is he cutting himself with stones? Why is it night and day all the time, tormented all the time? Well, look, I don't know. Why don't you just ask yourself? You, you remember a time in your life when you felt defiled and isolated? And how did that go for you? I feel like that would be a pretty good description of how I felt. Yeah. I mean, it didn't matter what I was doing. It didn't matter day, night, all the time. It was, uh, you know, it, it, it was, there was always this constant dark cloud over my head reminding me of all the problems in my life and all the things that were out of my control and all the pain that was occurring and all these things. 
You can't get away from it. You can't because now he's got you. See, Satan intends for your suffering to cause you to lose trust in God because that's what happens. I mean, how long are you going to suffer before your trust in God's gone? I mean, it's coming. Sometimes, you know, it's a sh- depending on you, depending on, you know, depending on your, your background, depending on the circumstance and the situation. But all of us inevitably are going to end up there. Because here's the thing. When everything's going wrong and everything's falling apart, and suddenly either a voice from my past appears that says, oh, you know, hey, when I was a kid and I used to go to church and no, 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 and, you know, or, or, you know, my parents taught me to believe in God. Or maybe somebody shows up and says, hey, you know, you, maybe we ought to have a conversation about God. The first thing I'm thinking is, God, you think I want to talk about God? I mean, if God's real and I'm going through all this, that's the, I don't want nothing to do with him. Because look at all these problems in my life. Look at, all these, look at all this pain in my life. Look at all this. And so if there is a God and I'm hurting and suffering day after day after day, I can't get away from everything that's wrong. I'm not going to trust him. See, because suffering, suffering makes us miserable, doesn't it? Yeah. And you know what miserable people love? Misery. That's what they love. They love misery. I mean, all you got to do is walk up and start talking about good stuff, and they are gone. They get away from you so fast. They're like roaches when the light comes on. They out. I mean, once you get miserable, that's all you want is misery. And the only, the only people that you can tolerate around you are other miserable people. So you can just compare your misery back and forth with each other. And so what's, what's really happening is, see, you see a, so I just want you to understand this. You see a miserable person. You know a miserable person. Are you looking with your human eyes or are you seeing what's unseen? What's really going on? You think they want to be miserable? No. I mean, and some believe me, some people act like they want to be miserable. They don't want to be miserable. They're suffering. And they're isolated. And it's because they're defiled. What's defiling them? What's, what's at the root of all this guilt and shame and regret? And what is it? What's going on? You gotta see with, you gotta see what's really happening. It's not, it's not flesh and blood. And listen, I I've told you this a thousand times, but your enemy is never people. It's never people. Because There's powers using the person. So you may be being wounded by somebody, but it's not that person. It's the one behind that person, which you still have to use wisdom and deal with it the same way. But you just need to understand what's going on. No one wants to be miserable. Nobody wants to suffer. 
Nobody. Now, they may genuinely want you to suffer because they're miserable. And that's what miserable people want. They want you to be miserable. Because nothing's more annoying to them. See, when you're in the darkness, what you don't want is light. That's what you don't want. So what happens when you, when you lose trust in God and you get miserable? Well, then there's, it, it, it's going to break off all communication with God. See, you're not going to talk to a God you don't trust. You're not going to pray to a God you don't trust. You're not going to reach out to a God you don't trust. You're not going to depend on a God you don't trust. See the scheme here? It's the same scheme. So he's got this man out there, and he's miserable, and he's crying out day and night. And so defiled, isolated, suffering. You can see it around all the time. I'm sure you're thinking of people that are in your family, people that you work with, people that you know, and it's real. It's real. So let's talk about the marvelous work of Christ. The marvelous work of Christ. Because that's really the... beautiful part of this whole passage now i want to show you something first of all i want you to see that jesus granted the request of the demons he flips he does the opposite of what you would expect him to do which is always baffles people he granted the request of demons see then the bible says then the demons went out from the man and entered the swine And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the lake and drowned. So they committed suicide, right? That, this is where we get the term deviled ham from, right here. You want some more? They did a swine dive, right? I mean, we could go all, where would we get the term Bay of Pigs? Right here. It's biblical. So you got all these thousands of pigs drowned in the lake. And it's kind of perplexing. Like, when Jesus approaches, the demons freak out. What have you to do with us? Don't cast us into the abyss. And then the demons make a request. Hey, there's some pigs over there. Will you cast us into the pigs? And Jesus goes, Okay. Now, to further complicate the situation, Jesus denies the request of the restored man. See, after at the very end of the story, the, the once demon-possessed man is now fully restored and healed. And the very last verse says, Now the man from whom the demons had departed begged him, now, the demons did what? Begged him, same thing, begged him, same word, begged him that he might be with him. He's like, Jesus, I want to stay with you. But Jesus goes, no. Nope. Now, you know he's thinking, hold up a second. 
you, the demons beg you and you do what they ask. I beg you. I just want to be with you. And Jesus sends him away. Return to your own house and tell the great things that God has done for you. And so he went away and proclaimed throughout the whole city that the great things that Jesus had done for him. Now, why? I mean, not why did, I think it's fairly obvious why Jesus denied the request of the restored man, but, but why does this story lay out these two opposite sort of, you know, inverted realities? Why? This is where it really gets good. See, there's a principle at work here that we need to, that, that it will help us to really grab a hold of this issue of unseen things and seeing things and so on and so forth, of, of the, just the grace of God. This principle is God often reveals the, the glory of His holiness and handiwork through observable data. That's what He does. He loves to do that. What He loves to do is use tangible things. Look, look at Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. Well, it doesn't have to do that, but it does. The sky above proclaims His handiwork. What about the verse from Sunday morning, last Sunday morning in Romans 1? For since the creation of the world, His invisible, invisible attributes are clearly seen, how? Being understood by the things that are made. Observable data. Even his eternal power in God has, so that they're without excuse, right? Let's don't overlook the way God has specifically chosen to do things. For example, what about the empty tomb? What about the empty tomb? Do you realize how easy it would have been for Jesus to resurrect from the dead? And us not know a thing about it? You know how simple that would have been? You know how far out of the way he went? You know how many bazillions of details he laid down to make sure that when the tomb was empty, everything got recorded and everybody was there and everybody saw it? Why? Did it change anything for him? Did it change anything about what he did? It's for us. That's the way he works. He loves to do that. And notice how the Bible talks about what he did in Colossians 2. The empty tomb, having disarmed powers and principalities, he made a public spectacle of them. It wasn't Now, if he would have risen from the dead secretly, would it have changed in one iota the effect that that had on evil? Zero. It would have been the exact same thing. Satan would have been the same defeated as he is right now. The only difference is he did it that way for us. It's observable. That's all by the design of God. God's in the business of making the incredible credible. That's what he does. That's what he does. See, think about this. When God works in our lives, how does he do that? Now, I want you to think about this. 
when you got saved, did anybody see you get saved? No, they didn't. They did not see you get saved. If they did, I want to talk to you after the service. Because I might have to heal you. Huh? Think about, did anybody see you get saved? Nobody saw you get saved. They might have saw you do something or do this or do that, but nobody saw, no one, no one saw the Holy Spirit enter you. No one saw your sin being erased. Did anybody see that? No. And then what does God do? Then God takes that invisible work, and what does he do? He makes it visible. We don't see the work, but we see the consequences of the work, don't we? We don't see the cause, we see the consequence, don't we? Yes, we do. And the consequence verifies the cause. And why does it work that way? Because we made it that way or because we decided that or because we had anything to do with that? We didn't have anything to do with that, did we? That's how God works. That's what he does. That's his specialty. He makes the incredible credible. And the way he does that is through observable data. He does it all the time. So let's think about this. So why would Jesus grant the demons request? That's the question I want to know. Come on, really? What? You're, wait a second. You're going you're gonna, to you're gonna give them what they want? Well, the first thing, number one, is it gave visual proof that the demons have been cast out. All Jesus is doing is what he always does. It's just the fact that he's having this interaction with demons that throws us off. But this is what he always does. This is how he makes the incredible credible. See, remember where Jesus is. Where is he? He's in a Gentile region for the very first time. Now, how many believers are over there? Zippo. None, nada, nobody. It's the first time he's been over there. So to our knowledge, there's not a single believer in this whole region. So this is this maiden voyage over there. So when he cast the demons out, see, what if he would have just, you know, waved his pinky finger and said, okay, they're gone. Well, they would have been gone, but they wouldn't have been, it, it wouldn't have been nearly the eyewitness account, now would it? Because what happens? See, he casts them into the swine, and then the swine go bailing off the cliff. And so what does the Bible say that the people who were there feeding the swine did? They run into the city and tell all the people and the owners, yo, you need to come see what just happened out here at the lake because we got a situation. And then everybody comes running out to sea, and there's 2,000 pigs floating in the ocean. There's a tangible, what happened to all the pigs? Well, that man over there, you know, the crazy guy that we've been scared of trying to chain up, but he keeps coming out all naked and bloody and everybody's, you know, petrified of him. Well, that guy's not, not naked and bloody anymore. 
And all the demons that were in him went in the pigs, and the pigs jumped off the thing. And so now, look at what's happened. So all these Gentiles are going, whoa. You see, you see the, I mean, what did he do? He just greatly enhanced this, the, the impact of this moment, didn't he? Of course he did. Because just like with the empty tomb, the soldiers, the stone, the whole thing. Well, he knows there's opportunity for them to deny. He knows there's always going to be people that say, no, the body got stolen. Oh, he really wasn't dead. Oh, so the whole thing about pierced in the side, the whole thing about the guards are there, the whole thing about the stones rolled away, the whole deal about all the linen cloths are perfectly folded up into the tomb in the perfect way. They weren't like scattered everywhere. All of what is going on, it's the same thing. It's the same thing. Jesus is simply dealing with man's unending ability to deny reality. So he gives them a couple thousand dead pigs floating in the water. I mean, here's the thing. These people, the people that own these, they've probably been pig farmers for generations. How long do you think pigs have been out uh, uh, grazing in this field, in this area? How many generations? Never have pigs jumped off and committed suicide before. That's never happened. Pigs have never jumped off into the lake. It's never. Now, all of a sudden, on one day, all the pigs, all together, all jump off. You see what's happening? See, if I'm one of the disciples and all these, <laughs> all these Gentiles come running up and they're like, wait a minute, what now? I'm like, what you got? Hmm? What's your explanation there, huh, smarty pants? Like, if you don't think this guy standing right here is God, explain that. So it's visual proof. But not just that. Look, also, the number two is, it's also visual proof of the de destroying purpose of demons. See, I think that the other thing is, is that this is recorded in Scripture for us to just be again taught this lesson. That Jesus wants the world to know that evil always destroys. Always. See, here's what evil does. It always presents itself in a better way, doesn't it? It always shows up initially like, hey, this is going to be better. This is going to be more fun. This is going to be more life. You're going you're to have more freedom. You're going to have more happiness. You're going to have more. It always presents itself like you're going to win. And is it new? No. The serpent in the garden started with that deal. Hey, you know, God's holding out on you. If you'd eat of this fruit... You could get some, some better stuff. You could, you, could, you could be like him. You could, it's always the same thing. So the whole scheme of evil is always just to get you to buy into the lie that, well, it's going to be better. When in fact, what does evil always end up in? It always ends up in death. See, the wages of sin is always death. It's always death. It's always death. So you sin against somebody you love, and you sow seeds of death into that relationship. 
it's hurt, it's wounded, it's and and here's the thing, maybe you're maybe you're able to work through that, maybe you're able to repair that, maybe you're able to, but a hundred years from now, we all know that seed's still there. It's still there. Nobody's forgotten it. We might have forgiven it, we might have moved past it, we might have grown through it, just depending on the situation, but it's still there. It's still there. It's there. And every time you think about it or every time you're reminded of it or every time you, what does it do? It, it's, it brings up, you, you don't think of, oh, yeah, that, but, boy, look at, no, it hurts. It's, it's death. It's always death. And Jesus is just pointing out the reality that, hey. So what God loves to give? Evidence. Think about all the ways that God loves to give evidence. It's interesting that this is the the passage that I have and then the the things I've been studying for the last two Sundays and what we're going to talk about this coming Sunday with regards to sanctification and how it's interesting that I'm reading this passage, I'm studying this passage, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, about the, the modern Christian comprehension of sanctification and how hard we in Western culture have worked to try to create a Christianity whereby you don't change. And one of the reasons why that's absolutely absurd and impossible is because God is a God of evidence. See, this is my theory, according to what I know about Scripture. If there's no evidence, then God's not in it. Because there's evidence. See, if God's working in your life, I can see that. People can see that. And, and you, like if, if, if when I say to you, when the Bible talks about, you know, my spirit bears witness with your spirit, if that doesn't make any sense to you, well, then you, there's a problem because it happens to me all the time. I can tell when I'm around people. You can see the work of God in their life. If there's no evidence, there's no God. And here's the thing. Think of, think of how crazy this is. There are people who, now I've been here for 30 years. I know people that have been coming to church for 30 years, and they're the same as they were 30 years ago. The same. I don't get offended because, you know, I'm not calling out names, but they're the same. How in the world could you ever come to the realization that you're saved? I mean, how, that is, you'd have a better shot at convincing me that you're from Mars. There's no possible way. There's no possible way. 
no possible way. So why would Jesus deny the request of the healed man? So here's this transformed man who now has a, a, a transformed heart evidenced by his desire to be with Jesus because remember what we said last Sunday, you can't want to be with Jesus unless the Spirit lifts the veil and invites you. And so he's responded to that. So now we could say according to 2 Corinthians chapter the end of chapter 3, that the veil's been permanently removed. And so here he is. He wants to be with Jesus. And Jesus is like, no. Well, the demoniac's transformation was immediate and it was observable, just like all the other miracles we've talked about. And so uh, they went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus, and they found the man from whom the demons had departed sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed in his right mind. So he's sitting there dressed, and he's sane. So the first thing is, he is under authority. See, there's, there's already evidence. Did anybody see him get a new heart? Did anybody see the veil get removed? Did anybody see the, the work of the Spirit in his life? Nobody saw any of that. And yet here we are five minutes later, and guess what we got? Observable data. You see that? He's sitting under authority. He's sitting at the feet of Jesus. So you see the person who's been coming to church for decades and not changing. Well, who's on the throne of your life? Clearly it's you. Who's calling the shots? Clearly it's you. Number two, he was different. He's already observably different. So when we have a situation in the church where maybe we got a, one spouse been coming to church and God's working their life and they've been praying and praying and praying for their unbelieving spouse and then by some, you know, uh, God works through all these situations and circumstances and then that unbelieving spouse comes to faith in Christ. The first thing I do is I go to that believing spouse and go, now listen. We need to have a talk. You need to just tone it down and zip it up. Because you, you don't know who you're married to now. So you need to just forget about all that stuff. And you need to just have a whole new set of, of, of eyes to see what's going on. Because this person is not the person that, that they were. And it's going to take you a minute to get used to them. Right? You know how this goes, like some of you are Navy families, so you know, dad's gone for nine months and then he comes back and kaboom, the whole family goes up in smoke because they've been operating and they got a system down and all that. And then dad comes home and he's like, hey, why are we doing that? What are we doing over here? What's this about? What's that? You know, and it just becomes, a, and you got to go, ho, 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 get, just let's take a month to get used to being home. Isn't that right? Now, what happens if all of a sudden your spouse becomes a new creation? It's going to take a minute. See, some of y'all in here are like, yeah, because you're sitting next to the new creation, and you know. You're like, wow. I mean, I lived through that. Because, yeah, they're different, and it's, it's observable data. There he is, clothed. He's not naked. He's clothed, and he's in his right mind. 
Do not be conformed to the things of this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewing of your mind. Are you going to see the renewing of somebody's mind? No, but you're going to see the evidence of it. You're not going to see the cause. You're going to see the consequence. Yes. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, they're a new creation. The old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Do you see them become new? No. You see the evidence of it. Yes. See, we were not created to read stories. We were created to live stories. See, we read the stories that explain and teach us and give us what we need to live the story, to understand, to to be able to operate in a world of seeing things and understand all the unseen things that are going on around us. Right? Yes. Jesus said, I've come that you may have life and life more abundantly. So do you think you're going to have abundant life? You're going to have more abundant life and it's not going to be evident. It's not going to be visible. It's not going to be tangible. It's not going to be seeable. Of course not. I mean, it's just ridiculous. So Jesus says in verse 39, and then we're done. He says, return to your house and tell what great things God has done for you. And he went his way. And proclaimed throughout the whole city what great things Jesus had done for him. Well, see, your home is an invitation from God to seek God and a commission from God to help others seek God. In other words, that's what we learned in the four series from Acts chapter 17. That wherever we are, God put us there for a reason. And so he's just illustrating what he tells us throughout the Bible That we're where we are because God put us there. Does that mean that's the only place we're supposed to be? No. But it does mean that wherever we are, we should be doing the work that he's called us to do. And what does the Bible teach us? That when when we're faithful in the small things, God does what? He gives us larger and larger opportunities. In Acts 17, the Bible says that he, Jesus, God has made from one blood every nation and men to dwell on all the face of the earth and has determined their predetermined times and the boundaries of their dwellings. And why has God done that? The very next verse, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of them. That's right. See, isn't that interesting that what the Bible says is God places us for the exact purpose that we might find the invisible things that are right around us through visible means, that we would be the visible means that would lead people to the invisible realities that they need. Isn't that something? So God put us where we are to show the people around us who he is, who he is. That's why we are where we are. So three realities. Three realities. I think you should, you should keep these at the forefront of your mind. As you leave here, I think this is how we can apply all of this information. Reality number one. I should have put everybody, but I just couldn't do it, so I put most people. because I really think it's everybody. But most people fear reality. They're afraid of it. They don't want it. As evidenced by what happens in this passage. Notice 
Then the whole multitude of the surrounding region of the Gadarenes asked Jesus to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. Now, we got to go, but just think about this for a second. You got a bloody, naked, demon-possessed lunatic that's terrorizing the town so much so that you're chaining him up to stuff. This guy is this, you, you, everyone hides their kids. No one's going out at night. They're all, you know, they hear, you know, the kids are going to bed at night and they're hearing him out there rah, screaming in the wilderness. And it's a big, then somebody shows up and completely transforms him into a sane, dressed, normal, loving person. And they go, we don't like you. You should leave. which you go, that doesn't make any sense. Oh, yes, it does. Because if you know anything about trying to be a light in the darkness, that people do not want reality. They're afraid of reality. They're not going to be receptive to reality. If God doesn't supernaturally give them eyes to see and ears to hear, they're going to get you away from them as fast as they can. And here's the thing. Is there anything you can do? No, not really. Our responsibility is not with what happens. It's just what we do. That's all it is. It's what we do. The question is not, the question for us is never, hey, well, what happened? Of course, we're interested in that and we care about that. But the main issue is, was I faithful? That's it. Was I faithful? People fear reality. Number two, God can use anyone. I mean, my goodness, if this story doesn't illustrate this, I don't know what does. So for all of you that are walking around with your little imaginary, unseen uh, briefcase filled with all your guilt, shame, and regret, I just want to let you know something, that the very first missionary created by Jesus was a naked, bloody, demon-possessed lunatic. Now, I mean, I realize you got problems, but... Comparatively speaking, you know, no, nobody's chaining you up to stuff. You don't, you know, you're not living in the tombs. God can use anyone. And so don't, you know, you know where this derails? Step one, when, you're, when evil's attacking you, step one, defilement. See, as soon as you feel unclean, then you immediately have this excuse not to do or obey anything because well i mean yes it's important and i care about it. maybe i'll pray about it but god will have to use somebody who's better or smarter or blah 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 or this or that or who knows what kind of garbage is going on in your head i mean come on you got to put what's behind behind and look forward and move forget all that Forget it. I remember the very, I know, one more blank and I'm done. But I remember the very first thing when I felt God calling me in the ministry. Do you know the very first roadblock that Satan put in my heart? The very first thing that I thought, my first thought was, I, I can't be in the ministry. What if these people find out about my past? That was the first thing I thought of. Like, I didn't think, is this really God calling me to do this? Is this the supernatural God who can do anything? Think of all the things I should have been thinking. But you know my thought was? 
what if people found out about my past? I mean, it's ridiculous. It's ridiculous. And then lastly, our story of change is meant to be a catalyst for others' story of change. Whatever God's doing in your life, whatever He's done in your life, whatever, wherever you are in the journey, in the process of change, you know that's not for you, right? Share it. Tell people about it. Share your story. Tell people about what God's done in your life. Tell people about it. Use it. It's the most powerful thing you have. Because here's the thing. When you intersect with an unbelieving world, what observable data do you have? You. 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 Don't let that slip through your fingertips. Don't listen to the voice in your head that wants to talk you out of it. Let's pray. God, thank you for tonight. Thank you for your perfect and errant word. Thank you for this passage of Scripture, God. Thank you for uh, making sure that we would have it, preserving it for us so that we could have this time together.